Welcome to Making the Dough Show. I'm John Cohn. I'm Nate C. Murray. We've uh, we've had a good day. We're recording on the weekend, so we're not dealing with stress and all that stuff. I, John, I've had the best week, so I feel great. We've got beers in hand. Yep. We've got a guest we'll bring up soon. Yep. Everything's going so well. Toward the mic. Toward the mic, toward he the says. Mic. And there's, a lot of, the there's a lot of directional stuff <laughs> that you got to do in the podcasting biz. But, uh, yeah, so let's do a real quick update so we can yeah. get to our guests. Okay. Um, we've shipped out Pun Pong now. So Absolutely. So it actually is out. In That's a real game. You have We Bought a Sell Sheet in your hands, probably. Yeah. Or you will in a day or two. Right, right. Um, other good news is we've uh, done some more dev on Clash of the Creepies. Uh, Nate, you've had the game for a couple of weeks now. Yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed. I, uh, I've, again, I've had more time, more time to think. And we can, you know what, we can go ahead and say why that is for mm-hmm. me um, here. Yeah. But uh, my head's a lot clearer, things are different, and so I'm, I'm, I've been really heavy on this, and we've been talking about it a lot, and you kindly today said... Yeah, we, should, uh, we should just build co-design. Yeah, so there you go. So we'll be co-designing Clash of the Creepies, the, the game which uh, the, the whole premise is it's a deck builder, but you have one card in your hand. And right. I think that's, it's, it's amazing. It's super interesting to me, and I think it's going to go far. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, that's coming along. It's now a fully Bread and Circuses game, top to bottom, T to B. T to B. T to B. Yeah. Uh, great. So that's that's pretty much all the updates we have for Bread and Sir. Oh, and then we have we can announce our new partner. Yeah, we've been working with Ed from uh, Gamerati, mm-hmm. and he's going to help us out with uh, marketing, pre-marketing, campaign stuff, and even likely he may, almost made me weep when we were on a call with him. Right. When uh, he said he would handle if we used him for fulfillment, he'd handle our customer service mm-hmm. globally. And um, my biggest thing is uh, customer service. Our guest will probably. Have a little note about how much customer service I left behind, because let's go ahead and say this: um, Nate Murray, no longer part of IDW. No, no. And so to celebrate that, we brought in a special guest Absolutely. from IDW. Yes, yes. <laughs> so so uh, we brought in Spencer Reeves. Say, yep. say hello, Spencer. Hello, Spencer. <laughs> That's good radio. Yeah, yeah. This is radio, right? This is live. This is radio. This is radio. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Good. Uh, good. So yeah, Spencer, right. why, why don't you tell us just a quick little rundown of, of what you do at IDW? Uh, sure, I'm a, I guess I would say uh, my official title is product manager, although I would argue that uh, the size that um, IDW operates at, that product manager is more like a two-hat situation of being part, partially product manager and partially um, brand management. And product management is a term that's often used in software engin- in engineering fields. To, to describe like really heavy lifting of like development, like so- software development and potentially like massive undertaking like uh, electrical and sometimes like actual engineering project management. Like is this building going to fall over? So in, in, in Nate's had this role at IDW before. Um, product management for us is basically like the A to Z of bringing a product to market. Which a lot of, uh, which is where I would say like the, the two hat situation comes in of saying you need to have a, a brand management uh, side of you too, because brand management's like knowing a product inside and out and knowing how to market it. And since um, IDW has a marketing team that mostly focuses on um, the publishing side of the company, the gaming side really is, it's really up to the product manager to work with our uh, department head to say like, these are the ways I would execute marketing this product that I'm currently working on. Whether it be stuff like John, uh, you and I both worked on those Dragon Ball games, uh, Dragon right. Ball Over 9000, Dragon Ball Z Over 9000, Dragon Ball Super Heroic Battle. They got bundled up into a um, countertop display that went into GameStop. Um, John designed the Over 9000 game, and then I, uh, with uh, Ryan Jones and, uh, and Ross Thompson at the time, right. worked on Heroic Battle uh, internally. So, uh, I'll just let John. Nope, we're good. Okay. He's, right. he's so, touching so, mics. So yeah. we, uh, hot mic, hot mic. So, uh, with that, within a mind, you know, um, that those products got kind of bundled up together to go onto a, a, a counter display. Um, and that's part of brain management is knowing like, Hey, how is this going to, how are these things going to be presented to the, the end user, not only in store, but potentially through social media and any other marketing, uh, aspects that you might, execute on, which uh, we don't always do a ton of uh, because board games are really, I would say, finicky and somewhat fickle 
uh, market, uh, knowing how to mm, kind of market board games is a, is a skill set that's completely unique, I think, in this in, in, than any other industry. Um, uh, so, yeah, so at IDW, I do a little of those. Nate uh, did the same thing when he was there. Correct. Uh, before I started there. So that would have been like, well, you were there for like five or six years? I was there from 2012 to 28, early 2018. Yeah, 2017. Yeah. 2017, sorry, yeah, yeah. and then uh, took a, a and then I and I uh, poached I poached you yeah yeah uh, to replace me. Sure. Um, you can say whether or not how truthful that uh, interaction went, <laughs> but I <laughs> yeah uh, I mean I knew I was getting hired to do virtually what you were doing. I didn't know at the time that you weren't going to be there when I started. Yeah, I so it, it, I got an offer and I had to go take a job and I, right. I poked around for the best people in the world that could replace me because I knew it was a hard job and a lot of people directed me toward you. And so I began the process of, uh, getting you excited and getting you out there, but I didn't want to tip my hand that I was in fact also, uh, leaving the company. And so, uh, I, you know, when that became clear, Toward the end of your heart, you you were aware of that before taking the job, but uh, yeah. but the the initial flirting was uh, a, think, a little different than the yeah, actual it wasn't, close. It wasn't, it wasn't too bad. It was yeah. the first two or three email exchanges we had uh, were, you know, potentially being your coworker, right? You know, and we'd have one or two people as like our assistants, mm-hmm. and then it was um, by my first in person interview, you had kind of came out and said like. Hey, I'm leaving. I've got another opportunity. So they're probably going to hire you. And the guy that's currently working as my assistant will be your assistant. Yep. And we just hired somebody for marketing. Um, and like I mentioned before, marketing and board games is a very ch- unique and challenging uh, task and role. Yeah. And so it's hard to find a person that I think truly understands how to market board games. And I would say that I'm not even a, like a master at the, I'm not at all a master at that. I did that for years at cool mini or not. Um, and the funny thing about cool mini or not was, uh, it was not to say it wasn't a tough job and not to say you didn't need innovation because the guy who took over after me, Jared Miller, who's now the, uh, as North America's like marketing manager or something like that, uh, pretty high up in, in Asmodee. I mean, he did a lot of innovative stuff after I left, after I left and he took over. But um, the thing about CMON was they had a pretty strict business model at the time of going onto Kickstarter and letting Kickstarter market the product and having a large reach. So a lot of it was as long as there was tank in the gas and it was like, you know. Uh, yeah, we all, he's smiling. He knows he, he, knows he flipped that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tank. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's tank in the gas. There's tank in the gas. As long as there's uh, gas in the tank and you're, you're somewhat competent at what you're doing. You know, you, you know what, how to phrase a message to backers and stuff like that. Sure. A lot of it was just put the, put the, put the engine on the track and, and it will go because there's a lot of infrastructure there to work with. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so coming on to IDW, where the brand management part came on was that we've had a little bit of turnover on the board game marketing side. Um, it's kind of hard to get somebody to stay in that position, especially on a team that's as small as IDW, where it requires like a lot of a lot of innovative thinking and a lot of like doing something different as opposed to like going to work with a more established company and brand like cool mini or any, you know, there's a number of established Asmodee or, and even though, even though I would say Asmodee is taking so much on now that that's a, a bigger task and a, a, a little bit, bit more of an unwieldy task than I think um, than most people would expect. But, uh, with that, I would just say, like, you know, if you're with an established brand that kind of has an image of who they are and how they market, um, that's an easier role than to come into something that is like IDW, which I w- I've always said to people when they ask me about IDW, like, what's the good and the bad? And the good is that um, we can operate like a small team, which means we can have very small, like a small group of people having very heavy conversations about how we're going to implement and what we're going to make and what we're going to do. The the bad is the team can have those conversations, but the company itself is a larger entity. And so you've got to then pass those conversations up to get um, more people involved and more kind of more people to check it off. Um, and so it's one of those situations where the good thing is, is like there's not too many cooks. 
there's not too much weight in the room when you're having these types of conversations. But the bad thing is, is that like you then need to go up and say, hey, okay, we've had this decision. This is how we're going to push things around. This is the products we want to we want to focus on. These are the IP in, in the case of uh, IDW in particular. This is the IP we want to chase, um, and these are the decisions like we want to make. And I I feel like um, the, there's benefits to both of our positives, and and then there's benefits to our negative, which is having a bigger company involved means there's a little bit more security, but there's also a little bit more hoops to jump through. Um, that's a really long answer to the question. And I feel like it's only <laughs> even part because you know you also do a lot of development. Oh yeah, as well because we've we've done a lot of development sessions yeah. for games that, yeah. that I've done for IDW, yeah. and they wouldn't be nearly as good as they are uh, if if we hadn't sat down and had several very long conversations about how to make games better. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I mean, I think I, I've, I've mentioned this before in, uh, you know, a couple of um, previous podcasts that I've been on, but also like when we do panels and stuff, is that development is my favorite role in the industry because you don't have to do the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do the part where you like come in and go like, oh, hey, everything's kind of, how this all works is kind of here. And maybe this would be fun, and like, let's just try it. And then if it's awful, you're like, well, good thing that that's not the game, right? Like, none but of that. That's a skill in like, and of yeah. itself is being able to see something from a bird's eye view. Yeah. To have me at talking a million miles a second, yeah. trying to explain a concept of a, a bunch of different mechanics and how they're going to work together, and you're able to look at that and already say, yeah, I don't think that this is going to work, or yeah. this may work, or you know, this is too many mechanisms. You're pulling too many levers at once. Um, maybe it should go somewhere else. You know, maybe dice don't need to be included in this scenario. Sure. Maybe it should just be tokens. I think. I think definitely. So there's definitely there's different layers of development, right? There's early development where we're drawing out <clears throat> potentially how the game is going to play. Right. And that is where, like, I think imagination is super key. Being able to visualize in your head what is the tactile nature of the game. And what a turn looks like for you as a player. Um, I think I'm pretty strong at that stuff. But one thing I um, have experienced over the years that I, I always push against, and I think this is one of the things we always talk about is, this is an idea. This is not a, you know, uh, uh, I don't know how to put this, but it, it's not a decree, right? Right. Uh, an edict, so to speak. Um, which is that I don't believe theory crafting is healthy a lot of people like the theory craft mm -hmm. here's the game here's how it plays you do this you do this i give you a bird's eye view of like there's dice that you roll to resolve this particular like set of challenges or obstacles and then there's cards that get used in this way and so i people start hearing that and it's pretty easy to start picking apart oh well, that doesn't feel natural and this doesn't wouldn't work and how do you counterbalance this versus that and all of that is theory crafting before the anything hits the table so i'm a i'm a kitchen sink guy like let's do we can do it all the only time where we're at the early level where i'm like well does it need to be dice or does it need to be cards or could we do this with tokens is only because i'm thinking of usually an, an in-game msrp what mm -hmm. is this game going to cost when it goes to the end user and if there's a way to make it cheaper and we can do something similar where like you know you can have a deck of cards that basically recreates the results of rolling a certain number of six-sided dice, right? Uh, that might be a better choice for a game in which we're trying to sell it for 20 bucks and it comes in a small box. Right. Um, but that is to say too, like there are times where I just hear like, well, if I roll the dice, because we were like, not to get too in the weeds, but we were talking about a game that you're working on potentially that would be like rolling the dice and then drafting some cards and then drafting the dice that got rolled. Right. And it felt like just even at the top tier level, like I think we should always, if you know, play with that idea. But it felt like a lot of decision making before like activation of those components came into play. Absolutely. Right. Like I'm deciding what dice I'm drafting, but I'm also deciding what cards I'm drafting. And we're passing all these things around. And then I'm activating the cards and the dice that I've drafted. Could be really cool, but it also feels like a whole lot of setup to then like start placing dice onto cards that you may or may not be able to place based on two right. rounds of drafting. Right. And so, yeah. So you had the idea that maybe we do the drafting and then go into tokens. Yeah. Um, that it just, what you say is what you do and what you place is what happens. And I think that was a much stronger decision. And it's funny because um, I just want to keep talking so that Nate doesn't get to say anything this episode. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to interject. I haven't found the spot. Uh, what's funny though, is because, you know, at the time that we were having that conversation, 
it hadn't occurred to me, but that that makes the tokens a drafting <clears throat> game with tokens as a resource. Mm -hmm. So then I'm drafting to potentially dictate how you have to spend your resource, right? Mm -hmm. And that's interesting because, you know, when we talked about this a couple days ago to a week ago, I can't remember exactly when. It was about a week ago, yeah. Yeah. We hadn't played uh, Batman yet. Right. And we've played Batman now, and the idea of, like, executing resources in a strategic way is way more interesting now that I've played a game where I'm like, oh, man, having these resources and having this game be resource-driven gives me and having another player basically be able to manipulate my resources and how I'm going to use them. You right. know, the placing of your miniatures on the board. I could see something like that getting boiled down into I have X number of tokens in front of me. You know what my resources look like and then you're drafting cards that go into act that go into the activation center or something. Mm -hmm. And the activation center. So you're going like, well, I put this here, you have to play that token here to be able to handle this. Right. I, I was thinking the same thing when we were playing. I was like, oh, this there's some stuff here that yeah, we can we could definitely That's really use. cool. Which is a good segue yeah. because we just played, I just finally got in from nope. Kickstarter. Let Nate say. Oh yeah. <laughs> hey. <laughs> that's right. Oh guys, hey, I just woke up. What were they talking about? Can can you say do you know the full title of the game? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh we just played Batman Gotham City Chronicles by Monolith Games. Nice, nice work, nice work. There you go. Okay, I'll let these two talk again. Uh, I liked it. They can tell you why I like why uh, as from a game design point, you should like this game. Yeah, so it, oh, it's ASMR a, voice from Nate. A, I was literally you don't have to lean NPR, in, by the way. You're NPR. the closest to the microphone. <laughs> you can stay back there. I thought it was really good. <laughs> oh, man. So yeah, we played Batman Gotham City Chronicles. It was a game that was on Kickstarter a little over a year ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I first saw it. They had it at Gen Con 2017. They were first showing it off. Yeah, that's right. It was a while ago. Um, I had to look through because I was trying to paint my minis, and I thought, ooh, they did such a good job painting their minis. Let me find the pictures I took. And I had to scroll for a very long time. <laughs> um, but yeah, it. we had, uh, honestly, I, this is probably the most fun I've had playing a game in, in a very long time. Yeah, super fun. Good. And we, we played two scenarios back to back. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the basic way that it works is there are some dice rolling, um, but more than anything, it is a resource management game. It's an asymmetrical, so you have up to three players playing as the heroes and one player playing as all of the villains. There are scenarios that are set up, which it's a little deceptive at first because you kind of think, you know, Batman, it's a beat-em-up, I'm going to fight all the villains. It's not really a beat-em-up. Mm -hmm. It is very scenario-based. So you've got a goal, the villains have a goal, and... Everything that you do needs to be in service of completing that goal because almost every single scenario has a timer. Um, you've got seven rounds to complete your, your objective. And if you're wasting time just beating guys up for the hell of it, then you're wasting time. Uh, that was kind of the, the earliest lesson that we learned when playing. We did two scenarios, like you said. We did one where Tusk, um, who's a villain I'm only passingly familiar with, um, Tusk was in the Gotham City Bank. We'll talk about that one first. Um, and he is trying to destroy evidence of his crimes. While Batman, we had Batman, we had Robin, and we had Red Hood. Yeah, it give, the game breaks down. It gives you kind of a uh, choice of tiered characters. You're, yes. It tells you how many you're going to bring. And it says, of those you're going to bring, you're going to bring one of these three. Which right. Was, which was kind of nice. Yeah, it gives you choices, to, especially yeah. to replay scenarios, which we found, I think, that the scenarios are highly replayable. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, when you cheated and pulled out the Ace Chemicals map that you said was, uh, <laughs> when it was your turn to be the villain, and you said, ah, oh, the Ace Chemicals map is, is too complicated. But then when you were the villain, suddenly that map hit the table all To of clarify, a to clarify, A, I said it was not the best one for your first round of playing. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And know. B, it's the only map that lets you have the Joker okay. as a playable villain. Yeah. So. All right, let's go to the tape. Let's go to the tape. <laughs> um, but we'll talk about that scenario second. So the first one we did was Tusk. So we had Batman, Robin, and the Red Hood, and they were trying to go in and collect evidence while the villains were trying to destroy evidence. And then to add to it, um, the heroes could have the Batmobile firing rockets at the bank to destroy walls to get an easier access entry point, which was pretty cool. So it was cool, but there, was, there is one thing that's weird about this, and I, don't, we, I think we have to figure out, we didn't dig around too much, we just wanted to get to playing, but this is one of the weird things about Monolith being a like, Kickstarter-exclusive company now. Right. Is that the rule book had like, oh, you can be either version of Batman. Mm -hmm. 
Although, I know this sounds weird because I guess everything's technically Kickstarter exclusive, but like the Frank Miller Batman that's like old Batman, basically. Right. What's interesting is like they put him in there as a, as a selectable tier one character. Batman's always like tier one. Right. But what's weird is that that feels, so, that feels like out of sync because you're like, oh, I have these two Batman I can choose from. But like one of them was like the like Kickstarter version of Batman. Although I guess every version of Batman's Kickstarter. Right. Which is the weird like mental hoop I have to get through. But the other thing that's strange that they do is they they brought in the Batmobile and you didn't buy the Batmobile expansion. Right. So there is a Batcave expansion that I believe comes with a Batmobile. Yeah. It comes with a, a large Tyrannosaurus Rex mm-hmm. miniature. Um, it comes with also like Red Robin as a playable character in there, um, and like an armored Batman. I yeah, I didn't purchase that one. I bought the core game plus the Arkham Asylum expansion. Yeah. Um, and so I'm I'm only assuming because I or or they packaged it missing of component because the Batmobile tile which they imply is it's, available there was not there. Yeah. So let's let's get one thing way out of the way right off the bat. The rule book for this game oh, is trash. It's absolute garbage yeah um, not only does it make no sense it is riddled with errors yeah. um for a game where every skill that you use every the weapon Riddler strikes again <laughs> yeah. Yeah. every weapon you use every skill you have is solely icon based now it, the only way that the game provides you to be able to know what these icons are is an alphabetized which not broken down by like melee attacks yeah. range attacks it's alphabetized and also it's got errors. There are multiple instances where the same icon is used for multiple Jeez. things, and you would never know it unless you went online in the errata. Now, thankfully, I went online onto Board Game Geek, and somebody had parceled out and put together printable mm-hmm. versions of, of all of these resources that were infinitely better than even the, the printable version that Monolith put out. Because yeah. they put out a printable version, too, and it's also garbage. Um, the fan-made stuff is hundred yeah. percent. You ha- almost necessary. So they, I would crowd, say. they crowdfunded the game and they crowdsourced the rules in Arata. Yeah. Almost like, seems to be what's yeah. what the new normal. It's is. like a Bethesda game. It, yeah. it, it requires the fans to go the extra fifteen percent. Wow. Um, but once we figured out how to play the game, yeah. it was fantastic. Yeah, because one of the things, like, the reason I, put, I brought that up was because we at the beginning we looked at the the bank mission with Tusk and we were like. Well, do you, is this like in the rules because they assumed you bought the right. the, the Batmobile expansion? It's not, I know it's the Batcave expansion, but the expansion that came with the Batmobile, or is there supposed to be a Batmobile tile that we're supposed to be able to place here? Right. Or are we just supposed to assume that zone is filled with the Batmobile? It's we wound up using like a proxy. Yeah. But it's one of those things where it's like, Again, the kind of mental hurdle of understanding what they assume the end user got because it's a fully exclusive Kickstarter product. You know, when, when Nate and I worked on games at IDW, uh, you always assumed people were going to get the retail version of the game and then you produced additional materials for if you have purchased right. an expansion or yeah. you got the stretch goals. You always build up basically saying like, I assume the rules in this box will explain how this game functions. Straight out of the boxes if you bought it out of the store shelf. The only thing you're getting is the stuff in the box. Correct. And then there's another pamphlet or leaflet that goes into the stretch hole materials. And then there's, uh, you know, another uh, rule book or rule lit leaflet type thing that goes into, uh, you know, any expansions you might have sold during the case. Right. So this is weird because it, it really felt like looking at the, even the scenario book. Just like, they just assume you went all in. Yeah. Well, and and to add an extra layer of confusion, it, it is a French company, and yeah. so it's oh, being sure. translated from yeah. French, and it's they didn't do a great job of translating. Yeah, yeah. There's a, quite a few situations where you're like, "What the hell does this mean?" Yeah. Um, I, you know, when I was running my villains one, I had to read the scenario five times before I was like, "Oh, and I get it." And a big bummer too is like it doesn't even just affect the rules, which is a massive bummer, but it also the bummer is like the slightly awkward wording and the fluff that's explaining like what's happening. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't affect the game at all, but it's just one of those things where you're like, Oh, I wish this was like just a tiny bit cleaner. Yeah. Um, because like I, I want a clearer image, like, you know, a clearer image of what's happening. And in some cases that, that image is probably, isn't probably going to be there. Like the Tusk, uh, Evans destruction thing we were doing. Mm-hmm. The irony is 
you have like I don't remember was it six or five or six or seven pieces of evidence around the the, the bank right board, and the 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 thing is is like Batman and Robin and the team could like pick up the majority of them, but if two were left as destroyed at the end of any villain's round, you guys lost. Right. So it's like you could get the majority of the evidence that's just not enough to put them away you know and like you feels like there's a there's a clever way to explain that in fluff mm-hmm. but it just is just straight up like oh you got to get the evidence before it's destroyed and then you're like but why why does having two left when they've literally gotten four other ones right why does that matter sure right? sure but it it did get us to a point where and and I think that one of the greatest strengths in the game was it was tight it was down to the wire and the tension that we felt on both sides was palpable. It was fantastic. Yeah, that was that was exciting to me. Is that each turn felt uh, unbalanced toward the other person? Yeah. So like when it was the hero's turn, it felt like oh we were crushing. And when it was the villain's turn, it was like oh god, he gets to do way too much. Yeah. And it was like that that emotion. I haven't felt that in a long time. I would say, no, you know, just in life, just I'm dead inside. Yeah, and sure. so like just <laughs> sure. this board game, like, I, you know, it, it woke something up in me. But and it, it came down good. to the last round and literally Spencer had Tusk and he had three pieces of evidence left. He needed to get two. And he had a large group of guys because Spencer was playing the villain and Spencer was was basically hoarding all of his villains to protect the evidence and we were looking at it like there's this is going to be an uphill battle yeah and then we we ignored one piece of evidence because we said oh well let's not worry about this evidence let's just try to get because it's already going to be difficult enough to go after this one and then Spencer figured out a way to, to bust through a wall that he had already broken and move his characters back in and all of a sudden that third evidence came back into play and it was like oh crap yeah he did the thing that we thought he wasn't going to be possible to do and now what was already an uphill battle seems almost insurmountable and then we talked about it and we figured it out yeah. we figured out a way to make our way around it and part of it was because we'd chosen the right gear in the beginning of the game i chose a bat claw that let me pull an enemy yeah that was interesting yeah the gear choosing yeah. was very interesting yeah. you can load you load out permission mm-hmm. and you don't have to like i assume it's not like descent where you're saving decks or anything like that we just loaded out yeah and we were just kind of loaded out correctly for the exact scenario so. right right and so yeah he had taken tusk in to protect this one bit um, of evidence. And if he had remained in that room, we wouldn't have gotten it. Right. But I had this bat claw that let me pull somebody. And so it was like, all right, I don't want to fight Tusk. I just want to pull him out of that room so that I can run in there and try to collect the evidence. Um, and then we, Jason Todd character, Red Hood, mm-hmm. just mowed down like four guys yeah. <laughs> in one turn. Right, yeah, very characteristic of, of the Red Hood. But, and good. that's kind of the thing is, is it very much it felt, felt good. It felt at every step like we were playing Batman. Yeah. Like yeah. this was Batman. Yeah. And, and the cool part too was I got to a point where I could have been, again, going back to resource, I could have been using my activation resource to like defend a bit more. But I knew I had, I could see there was two prongs and they were both maybe equally strategic, but one felt like a, if I go down this path, it's pretty much a surefire win. If I go down this path, it's going to require like some decent dice rolls. Um, Either way, dice rolls were going to have to be a thing that got calculated, which was you guys had cleared of the three evidences I had left, you'd cleared one room and gotten it. And then Jason Todd shot into the other room. Mm Mm-hmm. And I had two options, which was to start spending resources to potentially roll defense and try to keep those guys squatted, which uh, would have been okay, but would not have been a, a, ver- a guaranteed victory because you would have been able to get in. And then even if I only had like two guys in there, Robin had so many activations that he probably could have muscled his way through it. Um, whereas my other option was to hope that you rolled poorly enough that you weren't going to be able to get in and activate, spend the, the exact amount of resources I was going to get, which was six. I would get my five back and I had one sitting there and respawn a bunch of tough dudes and be able to just fill that room because there was a respawn spot right around the corner, fill that room with those dudes and then just squat on it again. 
Yep. Even though I wouldn't be able to activate those guys, I would have been able to respawn and activate those guys. I wouldn't be able to respawn or activate them again. It wouldn't matter because there have been so many guys in that room, you guys would not have been able to activate it by the end of the next round, right? Right, right. So, um, which is to say, which is actually a, a good point to bring up the kind of unique nature of the villain. I think that this game has maybe the most interesting villain player mechanic that I've ever seen. And as a company that makes, you know, the Turtles game, right. where we have a villain player, and it's a very cool asymmetrical style game, this just feels... Very intuitive, like very intuitive, but it also feels very innovative and unique. Mm -hmm. Which is basically you have a river of cards in front of you, and as you spend, as you buy, as you spend to activate them, so you spend your activation resource to activate them, they shuffle up and down on this river, meaning they cost more or less. So if you spend a guy, if you if a guy is shuffled all the way to the left and he's only worth one, you spend one to activate all of that unit type, and he goes back and now becomes seven. Right. Which means you can't just sit there and spam these guys that are right, super useful. Right. They be it becomes a thing of like, well, if I use him now, he's super expensive later, or I don't use him now. I hope that you know I can wait another turn before I really need to use this guy, and he is super cheap later. And the other, I can afford to use these other guys too. You know, um, the the kind of metric there is being that you can only use two tiles, which each enemy type is a tile. Mm -hmm. You can only activate two tiles per turn. So even if you have a ton of resources, you're going to wind up using those two, spending those resources to either activate two expensive tiles or two cheap tiles and then having a bunch left over to do things like roll defense when you're attacked on the hero's turn. Right. Um, right. Yeah. That yeah, was cool. Yeah, it was really cool. It was just like, yeah, managing your budget, essentially, mm -hmm. in a smash em up kind of this dungeon crawling game was something I've never seen before, and I agree, like... And, and as a hero player, both times, um, I got to watch as the the villain was kind of allocating the points because you refresh some points each round and you, you get to watch like, and you as a hero, you get, to, you get to watch their kind of board and go, oh, that guy's a yeah. six right now. Like we can make him spend that guy at this really expensive thing. Like let's run at him, you know? And right. so it, it's, uh, there's, it's an interesting meta above the yeah, above sure. the table level to this game that I don't think exists in a lot of dungeon crawls, yeah. and I like off the table mechanics personally. Yeah. That's always been a thing for me, and I think that's actually a good point because one of the things that you made a comment about earlier, Nate, was that um, where this game differentiates from a lot of dungeon crawlers because I would argue it's not a dungeon crawler. No, I agree. Um, yeah. it, it, and I would also argue that like. I mean, the, the dice do a lot. They, they do combat. They do manipulations. There's some odd wording about, like, a, a, a complicated thought manipulation, yeah. which is, a, is kind of an interesting... It's some, some villains are capable of complex thought, and others yeah. are just not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, it's kind of funny that there's those, those... And then, like, some heroes are just better at complex thought than others, which is, like, a funny uh, concept to, to wrap your head around. But one of the things you said that I thought was really interesting, Nate, was that... It, it feels, when you were talking about the heroes, you were like, oh, it's like Pandemic. There's two of us playing three heroes. Because that's, so that's one thing about the game, which is um, you have to play the number of heroes. Right. It's not, like, like another, a normal dungeon crawler would be like, yo, if you want to play two heroes, like, you know, coming from Simon where you've had Zombicide and, like, um, Massive Darkness and stuff like that, if you want to play two heroes... You can play two heroes. We really recommend everybody play, you know, if you're playing two players, it's two and two. You know, each per player actually has two heroes. This game is basically like, you got three heroes no matter the number of player count. Like, yeah. there's going to be a villain, there's going to be however many number of active players. So it really becomes like a meeting of the minds much more than it is like, I'm playing Batman. It's like, right. you and I are looking at our, our, all our potential activations amongst all of our heroes and we're having a very real conversation about what's the best play while also like you're saying above table talk the meta the meta uh tracks that start coming in where you're looking at john's board or my board whoever's playing the villain and you're saying okay this cost like almost nothing to activate next turn and it's these guys are in a strategically good position to activate next turn or they're in a really bad position to activate next turn so are we gonna deal with any of those characters or are we not right like and I thought that was really interesting because the villain board, again, part of being super interesting is that it, it almost does feel like a cycle of um, like board events 
like, okay, which of these characters are going to come up? Now, there's a player behind those board events that kind of throws the wrench in the system of being able to actually, like, gamify and completely calculate how the game is going to play out. Because John could just go, like, I'm going to spend all seven to activate this guy. And we'd be like, oh, okay, well, we didn't know you were going to do that. We would have thought you were going to stay up here in the one, two, three range. But it's cool that you can you can do a little bit of that, like, pre-calculus, right? Yeah. And go, like, yeah, yeah. oh, okay, yeah, like, we're going to calculate. We can kind of guess that these are more likely John's best moves. Right. And we can start playing against those. Right. Um, assuming John is the villain, because that's the last right. game. Well, the, the second game, because yeah. the second game we played was... Joe Where John cheated. I said not cheat. To, uh, he pulled out a board that he said we weren't going to play, and then also kind of on a range situation in round one when we rested. Okay. We, uh... I will say, I will say, I think the first round, he definitely was like, "I'm not going to correct these guys about where they could get shot." <laughs> I mean, you guys could, you guys knew the rules for line of sight. You watched the video too, I, you, Spencer. I am, I am, I, I have to, I have to plead uh, some incompetence. Some high-level incompetence on my part on that on that round. That's true. Um, yeah. So so the idea was they were at Ace Chemicals. Joker and Harley Quinn had kidnapped a uh, judge, and they were dangling her over um, the vat of chemicals, and they were trying to lower her in. And a lot of the villains were up on this catwalk, very high up, and across the board, across the board. But the the lightly delineated, very. A hard to read board. I mean, that's that's the game, man. You did a lot uh, of talking about certain zones. I I did that my best to explain to you guys fully. There's what one zone you didn't really explain much about, though. I did. I explained it. I explained, explained the well you explained the could. middle pretty well I when we talked about well. that. I told you guys about it. All right. In any case, I I think I did an adequate job of explaining it. Um, and so yeah, they they decided instead of going up uh, to the catwalk, they were going to go the other way. And so from the catwalk, a bunch of gunmen started shooting at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's a totally fair thing to we do. Got one no, hero a, yeah. completely aced in the first round. Right, our best sniper got you know piled on. We were shooting. Definitely, our mistake was shooting directly down the catwalk. We were standing on, moving like forward. The guys were basically like in front of uh, Huntress's like path. Yeah. Whereas, like, she should have turned around and shot at that catwalk. Yeah. Where, well, like, all the guns were. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe if the guy teaching us the well, game. And, and to be, and to be fair, I knew those rules. I, I have okay. to say, I didn't right, know those then. rules. The problem is, is that I don't think the game. Uh, I think that I don't think the game effectively uh, communicates a lot to the player. Right. It, it is a lot of rules that you have to just know. That's fair. Yeah. Um, and one. So I will say. I super enjoyed this game. Uh, totally. Uh, I would, totally. I'll play, I, I'll I play it again. I, we finished recording? Yeah. I'll play it. Sorry. And I, I literally <laughs> thought to myself, I was like, well, I know I can still buy it through some secondhand places for like not much more than the, you know, like I don't, you know, I don't need to own it, but like there's, you know, you always think about when you enjoy a game. Like, Maybe I should buy this. <laughs> uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if knowing Monolith, if this second Kickstarter they're doing in right. June if they offer the first game as like a you can you can buy the second printing, be mm-hmm. shocked. I would be didn't. shocked if that's not the case. Yeah, of course. So um, and I may end up buying the Batcave. Yeah, well, you got to get that Batmobile. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's funny is the guy that's doing sculpting for us for Metal Gear is doing up like he's doing the Metal Gear and he's doing a couple other sculpts. Um, and he's like he did the engineering for the Batmobile, oh. so he's talked to me a lot about the Batmobile, like over like oh when you sculpt these bigger miniatures, here's some things you need to know. Because he's like, when I did the Batmobile, or when he worked on the Batmobile, I don't know if the Batmobile he worked on is the one they went to print with, because he was saying that, like, uh, I think he was like, dude, I saw so many Batmobiles while they were working on it. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know which one they actually went to print with. But um, it's really interesting, because, uh, like, I really enjoyed it. And I think the game is, I think it's really interesting, because I think, John, you had said at some point in time that, like, it's less like a dungeon crawler and a dice chunker, and it's more like chess. Yeah. And I think that's totally, like... It's more about looking at strategically what the other players' best choices are, right? And and making choices based on that. And you're so while John, is, while we're looking at John's river and where he's got characters and what he's most likely to activate, John is looking at how many activation points we have in our wounded spots, right. our exhaustion spots, yeah. and our active spots, so he can guess about how much each ability, each activation, each character can do. And so there's a lot of like us just kind of looking at each other's boards and going like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and even at times too, like what I thought was super cool was like, even at times, like the villain and the hero players having a 
generalized discussion about how things would play out. Like, I don't know if that's because we're like, we were all just bros drinking beers and playing games, which I would assume most people will be when they play these games. Right, it's not right. going to be a tournament situation. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, but like, I thought it was interesting that like, I mean, it wasn't like, so I'm definitely moving these guys here, but it was like a thing where like Nate and I would be like, when we were playing the second, the second um, round, like, Oh, well, we could move here, da, da 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 and like John would be like, "Well, you know, like if you did this instead, you could get here." Yeah, you know. And then when we were looking at like, right, we're all friends here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We weren't playing super hyper. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know, except I, for I, when John railed us about that whole. Uh, I would argue that to sniper, me, sniper thing. Yeah, well, with me, I would argue that like that's the game. Like the game doesn't feel because it's a. I don't know. It just doesn't feel super competitive even though it is it, yeah. It, it, yeah one one interesting thing about it was that it felt if it, it felt like because outside of just like targeting like what hero you're going to attack or what like minion or villain you're going to attack there's not a ton of like f you you can do to each other no and, like, and the, it, sorry go on. oh I was, there was a point in round two where you where we were spencer and i were all were heroes and john was the villain there's a point where we might have almost won if john failed a roll and Spencer and I rooted for the role. Yeah. For him, we were like, "No, we want we want you to win the role. We don't want to win like this." Like, yeah. we, and it feels like fair like that. Like you, you root for the weirdest things in this game. Yeah. Like, we were high fiving not because we killed one of John's guys, but because John spent one extra resource point to save him. And in the math, it became like getting him to spend those points was important for later decision points that we would make. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. That um, one a part of that meta game is small victories like not not just clearing off the trash mobs that are all over the board but pushing the other player to spend the resource yes yeah. which is really cool the idea that you're like it's oh really I, good. I really like i really want to see you spend your resource to reroll yeah more than i care about whether or not you surviving this round yeah yeah and, and it really forces you to think outside of the box which is what creates those great story moments that yeah. you can talk about later. Yeah. Uh, there was a point where you know I, I needed to get these rolls to succeed so that the game didn't automatically end whenever you guys would stop the judge from getting lowered down. And you guys knew that the Joker was giving all of my guys free re-rolls yeah. when they would fail to try to uh, get the winch started again to get the judge going down. And so you guys both were like, all right, we need to just Hail Mary to take out the Joker. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it ended up coming down one point short, yeah. but yeah. it was such an outside the box thought of like, well, instead of trying to get and doing what the mission kind of asks you to do, which is to, to shut down these computers, it was like, no, we're going to go all in on this other plan. And it's a, it's a risky plan. It's a crazy plan, but if it pays off, it's going to be huge. And if, if you had been able to take on the one, jump, you would have won. One point away. Yeah, yeah we were one point away. And that's both of the scenarios came down to the absolute yeah. wire yeah, yeah. of who won. Because, yeah. like, yeah, had we taken out the Joker, you wouldn't have had the rerolls. And none of your and none of your guys, it would have been twofold. One, none of your guys, all your guys did the rerolls and still didn't start the winch. Because right. while they were while they were able to produce complex thoughts, <laughs> they were not good at executing complex, complex thoughts. <laughs> Uh, they're henchmen for a reason whereas then John had to then activate the Joker and that's another great example too of like if we had gotten John if we had pressed John to activate the Joker at another point in time the Joker would have been too expensive for him to react mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which yeah. is another cool thing about like how you press each other and one of the things I think that John mentioned is that you could probably play the same scenario a couple of times oh yeah because knowing that what items to bring in is a super like a super big so it's cool like almost like a like a, a first-person shooter video game, like a Call of Duty, where you're like, dude, now that I know the map, I would have brought in this. Like, we had talked about, um, we use we we could have used the explosive gel, which seemed right. completely useless when you seemed, read it. Seemed terrible. holes in walls. We were like, oh, if we'd done this, we'd have an exit right out yeah, this. Was to, run, been huge. to run right out the side of this place, jump down and hit that third computer. Yep, yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, we, we potentially could have really like done something with that yep. but yep. we uh we, we just didn't we didn't have the explosive jobs we didn't it. bring it yeah. in so it's yeah. one of those things where like your loadout your character choices all yeah. that stuff becomes much more interesting once you've played the map once or twice and you've yeah. got an idea of like how it's going to play out yeah. yeah so so i think we've got all three of us are are resounding yes is on re this resound yeah oh, I, yeah i, I <clears throat> one of the best gaming for this style game 
I, I gotta say it. It's it's definitely a want to play again, uh, which is my highest rating. Yeah. And and would seriously play it again right now. I mean, that's it. So cool. cool. You, you, All guys, right. you agree? Uh, absolutely. I, I would yeah. play it again right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I okay. want to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's go. Let's go on to our last topic, which okay, is our so thing of the week. Spencer, I'm sure you listened to all the episodes, and so you know this. Uh, but uh, we, we, uh, we, it's end, true, yeah, true. yeah, 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 yeah. I know you're. Yeah, I know you're a mega fan. You're, yeah. He's. It's weird that you're wearing a making the dough shirt, and we don't make them. Um, I find that <laughs> well, strange. Well, you're a mega fan. You make your own shirt. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's yeah. good. But uh, so we end with uh, what we're, we're we're checking out in pop culture, and sure. so uh, you know, music, video games, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. movies, etc. And so um, I'll. I'll start okay. and we'll go around the horn. Sure. And uh, I know I know Spencer's got, he's got he's looking through his notes now and and it says like be good enough for this episode. Uh, so Sneaky Pete season three mm. uh, on Amazon kicked off and uh, well kicked off and they dropped the whole thing. They're they're a Netflix model where yeah. it's a binge thing. And Sneaky Pete is uh, a Giovanni Ribisi and Brian Cranston vehicle, uh, which is excellent. Uh, no, that's a lie. It's not excellent, uh, but I'm enjoying it. So Giovanni plays a con man, and if you're if you're a con man, you're gonna catch me. I, I'm gonna I'm automatically gonna be in. Cranston is a producer. He does appear in season one. He does not appear after that. Um, but season one was very strong. Season two was very weak, and now season three we're back to strength. We found our way home. Uh, he's got his con. Like uh, I don't want to go too into spoiling things, but. One of the things that I find beautiful is that uh, Ricky Jay has a, a major role in it. And if you don't know who Ricky Jay is, you should just spend a few hours learning about this amazing man. He wa- he passed last year. Um, he was the most amazing close-up magician, so card manipulator mm-hmm. of probably our generation. Um, he could do original things, and he was very good at patter. Uh, there's a whole documentary on him on, on Netflix uh, you've seen him. He has the droopy face. He's the the you know kind of hunched over old droopy face guy. He was in a David Mamet vehicle, uh, a con vehicle that I cannot recall. The Spanish Castle, I want to say. Um, but he he appears as oftentimes in roles a con man or a uh, anti con man. One of the two always. They'll flip it to where either he is doing the magic or as a nod, some other character will do close up magician magic to. Give a nod to him, but a very special human being, and this is probably the last role he played. In fact, I do believe he died during uh, filming of the season, mm-hmm. and so I think they had to alter the season accordingly, the plot, um, because I think uh, there was there was a way it was going to end, and I, I finished it now. And I think that I think there was a way it was going to pay off, and I think they had to alter that. Mm-hmm. But um, just special to see Ricky on on stage. It was sad because I'm a huge Magic fan of the Magic Castle. I do all that. Um, and, and so, like, seeing him this last time. And then Giovanni Ribisi, star of one of the best movies of all time, Boiler Room, which is how I grew up in a boiler room, how my whole life was changed by working in a boiler room, which led me to board games somehow. So uh, really fun. Um, and a perfect weird correlation with Oceans. The first one's great. Second season is the exact same problem that Oceans 12 had, which is, like, Half of that movie shouldn't have existed because they'd already done the heist, but you were just watching bullshit. Same thing with season two of Sneaky Pete. But if you stick through to season three, it's back to the fun. It's back to the good. You'll get some Giovanni. You'll get the last chance you get to see Ricky Jay being a very good actor and character. Uh, really enjoyable. I, I, I don't know if they'll do season four. They probably won't. But uh, good way to good way to end if they don't. So cool. there you go. All right. Uh, all right, I'll, I'll go next. Uh, I'm watching Doom Patrol uh, oh, cool. on the DC Universe. Right on. Um, so this is this is the second show I've watched on this service, and you know I don't love paying for extra services that only have like one or two shows at a time. But I will say, the DC Universe is worth it. It's worth the the pay the pay per month. Uh, Titans was, in my opinion, fantastic, and Doom Patrol is even better. Uh, wow. It is in a time where we're in kind of superhero fatigue, especially superhero TV show. Um, this reinvents the wheel in a really weird and fun way. Um, we've got Alan Tudyk as a bad guy who's constantly breaking the fourth wall in a kind of a Deadpool-y way, but in, in a way that feels different enough that it's, it's earned and it's, I mean, it's, it's wash. I mean, he's so good. He's so good in it. Everyone's really good in it. Brendan Fraser's in it. Okay, nice. Welcome return to Brendan Fraser wow. into the mix. I'm going to put Buford in something. I'm going to be interested. It's, and it is 
it's weird. It is so weird. Everything about it is is something that's so bizarre. And it, it, yes, at times it's weird for the sake of weird, but in a time where everything feels very samey, um, that kind of is enough. It's enough to justify watching it. This is n not a superhero group. This is a group of weird, disabled monster people that shouldn't be working together. So that that's the thing that I haven't seen it yet, but I've been interested in... in and signing up for DC, uh, it's DCU, right? Yeah. yeah. Because basically everything I've seen of it is like, I'm like, man, this is like what Suicide Squad should have been. Like, yes. It seems like it's a bunch of like hacks who are kind of being put through the ringer to do whatever they've got to do, right? Right. And it, it's, you know, I, the big robot that uh, that Brendan Fraser plays as is like a super great character design. Mm -hmm. Super funny that they got him to do that. Yeah. And like... It just everything about that I've seen, I've been like, man, it looks super interesting. Again, just like you said, I'm not sure I'm ready to sign up for another streaming service. Right. I have to. I have to probably cancel one. Yeah. Although, might be it might be time to put HBO on the ice for a hot minute. Um, <laughs> That's uh, a whole other conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting. Team seriously, homie. I wanted. I wanted to look at. Can you the? They do like their new animated features go there. They do everything that goes there, um, and they have something new, mm -hmm. a new episode of something every week. Yeah. So as soon as one show ends, the next show begins. Is that turtles? Uh... It. I don't think it's up there yet. Okay. But it's going to be. And and as soon as Doom Patrol ends, yeah. which I think is this week. Immediately, Swamp Thing starts, which I am so jazzed. Oh, jeez, I didn't know they were doing that. Swamp Thing oh, is one of my favorite DC characters I'm, of all time. See, this is the thing: is I'm not a massive DC guy, but I really like Swamp Thing. I yeah. just think it's a weird character that's fun. Yeah. And the the Doom Patrol stuff looked really fun. Yeah. Titans, I had no interest in at all, but hearing that you liked it, it was good. It, the first episode was not good. The first episode was trying really hard to be edgy, yeah. and it and it sucked. But then yeah, every ex episode after that was exponentially better than the last, cool. Cool. Uh, and it really earned it. And then if you liked Young Justice, it's back and it's on DC Universe. Yeah, as well. that's another thing that people were talking. So it, it, I mean, everything that they have released right now, in my opinion, has been a home run. Okay. Uh, wow. Doom Patrol is, wow. is and Doom Patrol is the best of all of them so far. Wow. Interesting. Okay. All right, Spencer, what, what you got? All right, I'm going to do a, a quick shout-out. This one uh, is not going to be a thing I focus on, but people should watch Barry. Barry is a really good show. Barry is yes. so good. Um, it's a I, super best friends. Yeah, uh, such a great I, show. I, dark, dark, I was talking with John about Game of Thrones finale, and I was like, but what about Barry? And, and I said... A sentence I feel, I I don't feel like I ruined the whole thing. I mean, yeah, you did. You spoiled. It. Okay. You spoiled okay. the very end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I felt real bad. I I even went into Facebook Messenger and like deleted my message. I felt so bad. It's fine. It was fine. Uh, you hadn't you hadn't seen it yet. I hadn't. Seen I didn't it know he didn't do the same thing that any other normal human would would, which is watch them both on the same damn well, night. Delaney but, doesn't watch it though. So. Yeah. So now I know. But uh, uh, but anyways, yeah. go on. Yeah, Spencer. I yeah. big fan of Barry. Yeah. I was a big fan of Shouts. season one. Season yeah. two, I feel is better than season one. So good. And uh, definitely no ho like Hank. Three three episodes into Game of Thrones this season, I was like, I think I'm done. <laughs> like I, I was I wasn't fan rage. It was just like I think uh, there's a podcast called uh, well there's a, a group called Bald Move who do, do uh, Game of Thrones podcasts and they were like basically they were like after season after episode three they were like. Fan bankruptcy. I'm declaring fan bankruptcy. You can do whatever you want. I don't care anymore. And yeah. that's where I was, basically. I think I may have been there within two episodes. Yeah. Like, the episode where they're like, the whites are coming, and we're just talking. And I was like, I get why we're doing this, but this feels like you only have six episodes, and this feels like Goku charging up the spirit bomb. Like, it's, I get why we're doing it, but this is the most fillery episode of, like, things. And there's that episode's super problematic, because if you go back and you watch it again... There's stuff where, like, people are saying stuff that is totally counter to how that show shakes out in the end. Where you're like, oh, that's funny. You had the character literally say one thing in this episode that they do the exact opposite of or yeah. show the exact opposite of four episodes later. True. Anyway. Barry's awesome. Barry's awesome. Uh, so Barry became the thing for Sunday night for me. So yeah. get through that and watch Barry. But uh, the thing that I've actually on a second viewing of uh, and highly recommend is on Netflix as well. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, or not, I guess you were talking about Amazon, weren't we? 
Oh, it's on Netflix. So it's on another streaming service. So you guys, let's, let's talk about what you gotta get. You gotta get Netflix, Amazon, Prime, Amazon. You gotta get Netflix, and you gotta get DCU. Yeah. Hulu. You gotta have that Hulu. Hulu. Yeah. You might as well throw on the Hulu. The next thing you know, you're paying the damn thing. You're paying for yeah. the cable. Yeah, we, yeah, we broke yeah. the chains. Yeah. So uh, on Netflix, there's a show called uh, I Think You Should Leave. Yes. With <laughs> yes. And I, uh, my buddy Jared, turned me on to it. And he's like, dude, I've never seen a show that I think is more Spencer Reeve than this. Yeah. And within five to eight minutes of the first episode, I was crying. I was just like laughing so hard. Yep. And it's just a really oddball sketch comedy that I, I think one of the things I think is really smart about that show is that I think he based the reason why they called it. I think you should leave is that they're like, we're just going to take a character who's going to take it's to the extreme. Right. It's always, the setup is somebody takes something to the extreme. They're either the most annoying person in the room. They are either the person who takes things, the joke way too far. They're the thing, the person that takes something way too serious. Like it is super, super, super funny that that is like the crux and that's basically the setup. But every scenario that they present in that show is like a completely original and hilarious. And they keep finding like funnier characters to basically like, yeah, be the punchline right yeah so. absolutely and, and yeah the first episode super delivers oh, if yeah. you're not into it in the first episode then it's super not, it's, for, it's you not for you because yeah, the yeah. first episode it is i mean a plus yeah the 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 i don't know must the show each episode's only like 11 minutes or yeah, minutes. Short. Like 16 super, yeah, yeah they're super yeah, short yeah. so yeah it's like between it's between like 12 and 15 16 minutes yeah and the first episode has three to five minute rant that's provided that's presented as a like uh lawyer commercial where he says has this ever happened to you and and that that is one of the funniest things i think i've ever seen in my entire life where he just he provides this first like okay yeah maybe this thing's happened to you where he's like has this ever happened to you and then he provides you with a scenario where you're like that's a little out there but yeah i could see and then the scenario just spirals farther and farther and farther out of control and you're just like this is very very particular to this this character yeah. uh, i think yeah. that's the best thing is is that it takes that detour that you could never guess yeah, yeah. it's so bonkers yeah. and just gonzo where it's like no I, I you think you know where a sketch is going and then it takes such a hard left turn that it, it's like i have no idea what's going to happen in it, this and so tim tim robinson has like a you know, he plays most, he usually plays, usually, not in every, not in everyone, but he usually plays like what I would call the activating character. He plays the character that is taking things too far. He's the character that's, that's being the, the, the joke of the scenario. But what, what I think is super funny and, and he must have, he must have a fair amount of directing control is that every time they do something with a character, there is like an Id a strange idiom that they wind up baking in that is like a thing that nobody ever says, but they wind up feeding it into multiple scenarios. Mud pies. Mud pies <laughs> is one of them. And the other thing is pattern, the, the cadence of which the delivery happens. Like, again, with that, has this ever happened to you? There is a part where he is like ramping up, ramping up, ramping up, and then he hits like this one high note, and he has this like pause where he delivers the joke, which out of context won't make any sense, but he delivers this punchline, which is walk, slowly and that he has been cramming words more and more words faster and faster into each sentence until he gets to the point where he hits walk slowly <laughs> and that because he's perfectly built the cadence of everything is ramping up i'm saying more things faster and the things i'm saying are crazier and crazier and then he gets to the punchline of walk slowly which he <laughs> he like spaces out dude I was crying. I was just straight up crying. So you're on your second viewing right now. And you? I still cry. Okay. Okay. Because yeah, I literally, I was just thinking this the other day. I'm like, is it weird that I want to watch this again knowing that it's a sketch Dude. comedy show that I know all the jokes So now? I'm technically on, I'm actually on my third uh, because uh, the girl I'm dating like came over one night and we were watching the, we, I was like, we got to watch this. We want to watch the whole season again. And so I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it. I just... We'd watch the last two episodes I hadn't seen because mm. you know it's a sketch comedy show. Mm -hmm. There's no continuity, and then we walked right back and watched the first four. So then I went back and watched all of it again <laughs> this last week, just for wow. like a de-stressor. De he's also it's got, a good de-stressor. It's a great de-stressor, and he's also got um, their Netflix before this, and this is I think how he actually got his show. 
had a short series called The Characters. Mm. And the mm-hmm. character he does uh, a episode of The Characters. And The Characters are basically like, they get a, a stand-up comedian or improv actor or a writer, and they give them an episode to make a story. And Tim Robinson's episode of The Characters, which if you, I guess you haven't seen it, you I should definitely see because it's basically another episode of I Think You Should Leave. Okay. Um, it's 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 presented the same way. It's it's a couple of sketches. Whereas like other people did things where they're like me playing four characters that like interact with other people, right? So this in, in a single narrative, his are basically just like um, I think you should leave. It's just a bunch of sketches that gotcha. kind of have a central crux. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, yeah. Well, I think we we all love we we love Barry and we, we love to think you should yep, leave. Yep, so. yep, yeah, 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 he yeah, nailed yeah. it today, Spencer. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, as always, don't shop at Mattress Firm. And if you like wacky kind of things, there's this show I've been watching recently. Um, they have an episode even where like uh, the the the, uh, the investigator plays like a, a starship captain. It's pretty cool. It's called Castle. It's on ABC. So check that out. It's uh, you, you're, you're gonna laugh. You're gonna you're gonna cry. They do a lot of really wacky premises. So right. Castle on ABC. All right. New episodes starting soon. Great. We'll keep tuned for that. All right. That's it. That's it. <laughs>